You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Hey, let's get started. We're going to be Romans chapter 8. And we don't, uh, as you see, we didn't sing a whole lot. We don't have a lot of time because so much is happening. I mean, you don't know this about me, but uh, like... We have people, a swarm of students who are graduating high school. I was recently invited to my 20-year high school reunion, which I know, like, when I got the invitation, I was like, that's not possible. They messed up on the addition, um, and then I did the addition myself, and it is so possible. So it's another moment for me too. Uh, But we're going to be Romans chapter 8 and we're going to be in verses 28 uh, through 30. And we are going to be looking at our natural response. Like when we see God unfold his glory and when he does all the circumstances of our lives, the moments of like graduating high school, the moments of great, great success and great, great failure where all of those come together, God is working and orchestrating in all of those details to bring about good work in you and for you and to make his name very, very renowned. And so we're gonna ask God for help Uh, why we look at this. And so let's pray. Uh, Father, Lord, I pray that with your supernatural presence, Lord, that you would be here. Lord, we pray for an acknowledgement of the authority of your word upon our life. Lord, we pray for a clarity that the Holy Spirit would bring a clarity of the instruction that we see in the scriptures. Lord, we pray that the the raw, heartfelt questions of Romans 8, that we're only dealing with a few of them uh, this morning, but those raw, heartfelt questions that maybe we never verbalize, but questions like, what does God think about me? What can he do for a sinner like me? Can, how, will, I mean, will I ever really change? Will I always struggle like this, feel like this, act like this? I mean, even if we jump to Romans chapter seven, for some of us, we're crying out, like, why do I keep doing the things that I hate? Why do I keep falling back into those patterns? Like, if I'm a believer, can God redeem me from these things? Can he change my life? And so, Lord, I pray that you would use the encouragement of the latter part of Romans chapter eight, as we see Paul writing to a church that he loved, a young and growing church that he loved. And he's wrapping up the chapter to say something incredible. This is how you can be saved. This is how you can have assurance that God's good work in you will be faithful and he will finish what he starts. This is how you can know that life changes happen. This is how you can be sure And Lord, I pray that the beautiful truth of our salvation, the words that we see in our salvation, those beautiful, beautiful truths, I pray that those beautiful truths would cause a natural response in us when we see God's glorious nature. And so Lord, we ask for help. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, My name's Casey. I've got a wife and uh, four little kids. 
Uh, and we were here, I think it was almost like four years ago. And so I know some of you, there's a lot of you I don't know. Um, and that's just, uh, man, that's provident. That's, that's testimony of God's good work in and through you to reach more people. And so, I mean, that's incredible. The testimonies that we're going to see at the end with baptism is testimonies of God using his people to redeem lives. Like, it's a glorious thing. It's an honorable thing. It's a gracious thing that he would use God's family to redeem lives. But here what we see in Romans chapter 8 is we get to see a little bit of the supernatural movement of God as he moves in people's lives, as he shows himself, the natural response of God being seen is people moving to salvation and moving to worship. I was in middle school and I realized that every story that starts off with I was in middle school has to get good really fast. But I was in middle school and my next door neighbor who lived behind me, he had a rope swing. And how it was set up was a really large tree in their backyard. It was set up where you could climb up on his garage and you could swing off his garage and you could fly right over a picnic table. And so right now you're thinking, of course, this could only go good. And you could just do that over and over. And so we had ascertained permission to go over there whenever we wanted to, or we thought we had permission to go over there wherever we wanted to. And there was a bunch of middle school boys in the backyard. Now, uh, a good friend of ours, she used to always say this, like, if you have one boy, you have a brain. If you have two boys, you have half a brain. If you have three or more boys, you have no brain at all. And so we were back there with about six boys playing gladiator. And so we would stand up with weapons that we found in the backyard on the picnic table like nitro. Now you have to be over the age of 30 to even understand what I'm talking about. But this is a glorious thing. This is before American Ninja Warrior where you actually had to battle beast of men and beast of women for victory. And so we would stand up on that picnic table and assailant after assailant would come swinging down on a rope and we would defend our ground. Like our forefathers defended our nation. And so moment after moment, people came. Matthew Largent. One of my friends who lived about a mile down the street was with us and he jumped off on his rope and kind of came looping around to swing and the rope slacked and he just kind of fell off, but he hung on when he fell. And so he kind of fell and then like only like four feet off the ground is where it really slacked and he paused and then he fell on the ground. And so we all kind of leaned in like, is he gonna be okay? Are we gonna laugh about this? Do we get to make fun of him? Do we get to be friends and help him up? Or do we get to be best friends and push him back down and laugh at him? Like, what do we get to do here? And he sits up and he kind of gives this funny little smile and he had like mud on his teeth. And we remember looking at it, like that probably didn't taste good, but that's what you get when you play gladiator against me. And so he kind of sat up and then he went to get up and he kind of fell back down. And all of a sudden he made this weird sound, this noise that I can't get out of my mind. It haunts me in my dreams to today. And he lifted up his arm and in the middle of his forearm, his arm bent in a way that it was not meant to bend. And it was like kind of hunkered over and then came back and he made this kind of squealing noise. And he grabbed his arm underneath where it was bent, where God did not intend it to bend. And he squealed as he ran out the backyard and we all looked at each other like we should probably do something. And Matthew Largent starts to run home, but when he stood up and we saw his arm, every middle schooler, every gladiator 
in the backyard made the same noise. Like we saw his arm and it was the natural response. It transcends all cultures and language. That noise says your arm should not look that way. Everyone understood what was going on in that moment. And so he starts running down the street, flipping his arm around, making the same noise all the way down to share the love with the neighbors. And so we go and we run into the house and my sister who is in high school, who had her driver's license was in the house. And so we start to try to explain what's going on. And we're saying, Matthew, Largy, gladiator, rope swing, slack, uh, pig squeal. We're gonna need to go to the hospital. And so we hop into the 1974 slug bug that we called Ruby. And we start speeding down the brick road that I grew up on, Virginia Avenue. And we get next to him and we are yelling at him, get in the car, get in the car. And he just keeps running with his arm flipping around. And we do that for like two and a half blocks until he gets home. And then we're like, well, I mean, he's home. I guess we just go away. I don't know. But when we saw that, like when we saw his arm, we all had this kind of same response this guttural sound that came from deep inside of us. And one of the great promises that we see in Romans 8, verses 28 through 30, is that God is saying he's going to work everything out for our glorious end, for our complete change, and that his glory might be made known. And he's gonna go through five action verbs that all have God as the subject and us as the object, all moving from God to us. And he's gonna say the natural response of mankind when we see his glory, our natural response is that we see him as Lord and we bow at me. And then the great promise that whatever happens, he is working through and in those things for our good and for his great renown. And so we're gonna look at this in three headings. The first thing is we're gonna look at the present working of salvation that we're gonna see in verse 28. And then we're gonna look at the future goal of salvation that we'll really see in verse 29. And then we're gonna unpack the strong words of salvation. And so the very first thing, the present working of salvation. It tells us this, that God is daily saving me through his work in the details of my life. God is present day working in and around me to change me. And so this is the sanctification process. And so look at verse 28 with me. It says, and we know that for those who are called according to, or I'm sorry, and we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And so the great promise here is that if you love God, you can count that the circumstances of your life are accomplishing things both for your good, and that means if it's for your good, if you can see everything that God can see and why he's brought it into your life, if it's for your good, that if you had his vantage point, that you would ask him to bring those details and to bring those victories and to bring those failings and to bring those struggles and to bring that pain. All of those things are working for your good. And then it goes on according to his purpose. And so the good news of that, it means the details of your life are not random. 
It means the details of your life that feel like they have derailed your life are not outside of the providence of God as he's coming after your soul and he wants to create you into something. He's using the daily things. And so like right now, you would center yourself and you would ask like, what is God bringing into my life? What is present in my life that may be pleasant or may not be pleasant that I might beg him to take away? How might God be using that for my good and for his glory. We were uh, at dinner um, with Rodney and Laura and we got talking, I don't know how we got talking about this, we got talking, well, maybe because we're getting older, we got talking about Alzheimer's and uh, dementia. And uh, I mean, I guess that's what you do right before you go to your 20 year high school anniversary. Like, oh man, it could be setting in any minute, I don't know. That's true, I can't remember anything. And so we got talking about this and it kind of made me think of my grandma Joy. My grandma Joy, uh, as she got older, she got dementia and she just couldn't remember anything. And like you could talk to a doctor and one thing that those diseases do is it starts to take the filters off your heart. Like whatever you kind of think or feel, you just speak. And so all of a sudden you're like a three-year-old again. Like our kids, whatever they're thinking and feeling, they're just gonna say it. And then you say, go to your room because I don't have to hear that right now. And so I mean, like whatever's there, like it starts to take the filters off. And that scares me so much because I know what I think inside of my head and by the grace of God sometimes I'm able to grab it before the words leave my mouth and reel them in because after they leave your mouth you can't reel them in they are out there like the internal working sometimes just comes out my grandma Joy man she really lived her name Joy like We'd sit down and we would talk with her and she would ask the same question. So by the time you're like four or five questions into the same question in you know, like a seven minute period, we would say, grandma, you've asked me that question like four or five times. And man, joy would just come out of her heart and she would just laugh and she'd say, you know, I just can't remember like I used to and just laugh. And my prayer, like, if God has something like that for me, could he make such a congruent line between his spirit and my heart that 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 kind of joy would overflow? But the first thing, the present working of salvation is that God is changing you with his actions. And he doesn't just want to change your external actions. He wants to change your heart so that we can get to the end of the chapter in verse 37 through 39, that we can be convinced that neither death nor life, nor angel, nor demon, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nothing, not even disease can separate me from the love of God. And so the first thing that we see is the present working of salvation. The second thing that we see is this future goal of salvation. God is working everything to conform us into his likeness. Look at verse 29. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that we might be firstborn among many brothers. And so what he's saying, like right there in the first part of 29, he says, conformed to the image of his son. He says that salvation's goal is to change you into the likeness of Jesus. Ultimately, it's a son who never disobeyed. Like all of your disobedience, all that you have, all of your nature is hidden under his perfect record. And so the New Testament, it describes two family lines. It describes that we can be in Adam's family line, a line of disobedience, or we can be in Jesus's family line, a line of obedience. And it's his good work upon us that puts us in that line. Within the Bible, there are so many rich pictures of salvation. 
Like most of the time when it talks about the gospel, what, what we see in the Bible is it doesn't just give the Pauline gospel, you know, formula where like, well, you're a sinner. And because you're a sinner, Jesus was incarnated and he came and he died as a substitution for you so that now you can have new life through the resurrection, which we're gonna be celebrating with baptism. And that formula is important. But most of the time, the biblical authors, when they talk about the gospel, the good news of God is they start to unpack it in pictures. And so like one picture that we see would be like Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 36, verse 26, it says that we get two new things. And so it's promising that salvation is gonna come and it's gonna bring a new inner life, two new things. We're gonna get a new heart and a new spirit. And so the good promise of that imagery is we have a new heart, means we can feel God properly, that it is possible for God to move in you that you might feel about your circumstances and your life the right way. You might feel the way God wants you to feel. Or we also see the the new soul. And so Ezekiel 36, he promises that we can have a new soul in our life. And it means that we can be raised with God and we can understand and be with God. Salvation is also described in not just new inner life, but in new arrangements. And so in Hosea, the book of Hosea, a strange prophet in the sense that God came to Hosea and he says, listen, I want to use the circumstances of your life, not just the words that you proclaim. I wanna use the circumstances of your life to show a picture of what salvation is like. And so he tells Hosea, he's like, I'm gonna put a new arrangement in your life. I want you to marry someone who will be unfaithful to you. And then he, he married Gomer, which is not a real popular name today for girls, but we could bring it back. I mean, it's what we can do. And so he marries Gomer and God tells him from the beginning and it uses strong words that she's gonna go back to whoredom, that she is not gonna be faithful. And so she go, he goes and he brings her in and he marries her. And we see in Hosea chapter two, verse 16, it says this, and in that day declares the Lord, you will be called my husband. And so he's saying, your life will show a picture of the greatness of salvation, of how it pours out. And so it says, and that day declares the Lord, you will be called my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. And so there's a pagan name for God. And so he's saying, the relationship that you're gonna have is not just creator and creature. It's not just person who worships God. It's like gonna be like father, son, or husband, wife. And so right there it says, you won't even just call me God anymore. Verse 17, for I will remove the names of Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered no more. And so he says, listen, you will start to love me and it will change your relationship. Verse 19, it says, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know me as the Lord. Now we don't use the term betrothed very often. I mean, maybe you can bring it back. It's whatever, try. But betrothed is like of serious engagement. A betrothment typically lasted a year, but it was a legally binding engagement where you are legally wed, you're legally married, but you haven't consummated yet. And so it's a sense where there's a belongingness to one another, but you're waiting for the glorious day that's coming. And I don't know if you're married, if you remember back to your engagement, like you probably, depending on how old you are, you might remember it back fondly. If you just got out of your engagement, you do not remember it as fondly at all. You are trying to plan a wedding for your mother-in-law. 
everything around it has a price tag and you take all these little price tags and you add them up and you think, good Lord, we should just elope. (laughs) But if you remember like that moment of engagement, like you've had rings, she's wearing a ring. There's this sense of ownership and you're attracted to them. You want to be with them, but there's this date looming in the future and you want to get there, but it seems like everything is standing in between and you finally get to that date and everything about the wedding is standing in between you and if we're going to use that term, you're betrothed. Like literally the minister stands between you like a parole officer telling you when you can kiss her. And I get to do so many weddings and I love waving that power around. Whoa, 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 we're not there yet. But literally like coming in between you The photographer orders all kinds of people in the picture to stand in between you, literally coming in between you. Who gives them that power? The reception, you have to smile and smile and smile and smile. And then you dance a little bit and you smile more and it keeps going longer and longer. And you're like, why can't we just do a preconception so that we get to conception? And so why do we even do this? And so like it's coming in between you And then I remember looking and seeing Kenzie in her dress and thinking, it took like a team of bridesmaids to get her in that thing. How am I gonna get her out of it? (laughs) I mean, all of these things coming in between. And so if we take the old picture of betrothment, legally, we're together, but we're awaiting a glorious future Legally, we're bound, but we're, we're waiting for a glorious future where there's a new reality. And that's kind of just like us. In this picture, we are legally his. We are part of the family of God. We are described as the brothers of Jesus and sons and daughters of God. And he has declared his love upon him. He has written it upon his hands. He has scourged into history. And he is saying, you are mine and I am changing you through all the details. But one day there will be a consummation and it will be fully felt that you are mine. It'll be fully realized that you are mine. And so we see like this future salvation looming. The other thing that we see in verse 29, I mean, so first off, he says, I'm gonna make you like Jesus. I'm gonna change you. I'm gonna use the circumstance of your life to change you, to conform you like Jesus. And then he says this in the end of verse 29, that you might be firstborn among many brothers, that Jesus might be firstborn among many brothers. That means salvation makes you part of the family of God. And if you're part of family, your problems are your family's problems. And so whatever he's brought you into, if we look back at verse 28, He's saying, those just aren't your problems, those are my problems. He's with you. And now what we wanna do is the third thing is we wanna work through the words of salvation very, very quickly. And so the words of salvation, and ultimately I want these words of salvation to have great effect. I want them to humble us. I want them to empower us and I want them to glorify uh, God. And so what we're going to see is we're going to see five distinct action verbs. And you could do a sermon on each of these, but I'm going to wrap it up in seven and a half minutes because I'm about out of time. And so five distinct action verbs, and all of these have the same subject, which is God. And so that means God is doing it. And all these have the same object, which is Christians. And so the only people who receive these benefits are people who are found in Christ. And so the first word that we see in verse 29, it says, For those whom he foreknew for new. Like this is a word that Paul actually made up. The word for new is a common word that he used often. It's just gnosko. And so it's very common, but he had the prefix for right before it. 
And so what he's trying to tell us is that we can, be, we can be assured that God at the very beginning, he looked out and he didn't just see a mass of people that he was gonna invite in, he saw you. He saw you. Like he cared for you. Before you did anything to make him proud or happy or anything you could have earned it, he saw you. And he didn't see you as like Sunday morning best you. He saw you as you really are. And so the great confidence we have is God sees you. The next word is predestined. Look at verse 30. It says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And so that means that God has planned a glorious destination for you. Like the word predestined in the original language, it has the word horizato in it, which means horizon. And so it literally means that God has planned a new horizon, a horizon that you are never gonna get to on your own merit, but he has turned your life around to face a new beautiful sunrise. And he's now orienting all of your life to get you there. God has turned your life around to a new horizon, a wonderful direction, one that you never would have chosen without him, but he, in his glory, he gives it to you. In his grace, he hands it to you. The third word called. God works out his plan in his timing. In verse 30, it says, and those whom he called, he also justified. Like right there, that means he has drawn you into it. He has included you into the plan of salvation, not just for you, but for this world. He called you. He called you. The fourth word, justified. It's a legal term, but maybe the best way we can understand it is he's legally calling you something that you're not quite yet but he's promised through all of his workings and through his power and through his love and through his spirit that's now in your life that he's going to take those legal callings, the new name that he gave you, the new prescriptions that are over your life and he's gonna match them up. And so he's going to change your nature by implanting new desires. He says, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. That final word, Glorified, it's like God will complete his work in you. It's this promise that unfolds the end of this chapter that nothing can pull you out of this process, nothing outside of you, nothing inside of you, nothing around you, nothing that's gonna come, nothing that's, been, that's already happened. There's no past that you can have that's so bad that's gonna end it. Matter of fact, the word glorified, if you notice, it's talking about a future event that one day will be there, but it's in a past tense. Like you have to ask, like is, is Paul a horrible grammarian or is he trying to say that what God has started already, it's so certain that the only way to describe it is to talk about it, it's in the past. One of our families it's actually, um, it's the very first family that called me their pastor to my face. I remember we were talking about his life and he just said, hey, I, I, you know, I, I need to get your advice. I need to know what you think because you're my pastor. First guy in Lawrence who called me his pastor. On the way home, I wept. 
They were the first people inside our church who started to tithe, like started to give regularly. I mean, in that moment we were like, oh, Jehovah Jireh, thank you. <laughs> they do adult foster care and they have two mentally handicapped men that they just do life with. Clarence is about six foot four and really thin. And, and then Herbie is four foot five. My kids think they're Ted and Fred. Clarence has been in ICU for the last week and he died last night. They've had him for nine years. They raised their son with him. They read him Jesus' storybook Bible and explained the gospel to him. And when Clarence would pray, he would say this over and over in this husk voice, God is good, God is good, God is good. Over and over. When I would go visit their house, he'd meet me at the door and he would say things like this, always, come on in. See, glorification means, it means that in that moment, in that moment when he breathed his last breath on this earth, all of his impingements, all the things that held him back, all the things that hindered his thinking, all the things that hindered his body, were they just fell off him. And he was as he was always meant to be. And that was started in eternity past when he called him, when he could pray, maybe the best prayer we could ever pray, God is good. In this present disease, God is good. God is good. In this present circumstance, God is good. God is good. I don't understand it, but he is good. And what he began, he has promised that he will finish, that neither death, nor life, nor angel, nor demon, nor anything above me or anything below me, anything in my past can separate me from his good, good love. That's what salvation is. And so when I said this should humble us, it means if I find myself indignant toward a classification of sinner, it's because I think I did something to earn my salvation. Every word had the same subject, God, same object, me, him working upon me. It should humble me. It should empower me. Like, if not, God not only begins the work of salvation in me, but promises to finish it, it means that the uncertain events in my life right now, I can be certain that he's with me and he's gonna walk me through it. And it glorifies God. I text Heather last night and through tears, I'm trying to text, and I'm, I'm, I'm horrible at texting anyways. I don't use emoticons, they're ridiculous, and so I'm texting. And I just said, I can't shake 1 Corinthians 15 off my heart. Clarence, all at once, he shed the, the perishable off and he put on the imperishable. In a moment, he took off the corruptible and he put, off the, put on the incorruptible and he met Jesus and I eagerly expect that what you can expect, whatever that looks like, whatever glorious, renowned future that we have, when we meet Jesus face to face, you can also expect to hear clear and say, come on in. That's the glorious end of salvation. Whatever you're wrestling with, Jesus has promised one day it'll fall off you. In a moment, we will celebrate baptisms and baptisms, they celebrate the same thing. 
First off, we're invited into the waters. God invites us into salvation. We see in baptism, we're baptized by someone else because no one saves themselves. God saves you. And so the act of someone else baptizing preaches that. <clears throat> we say buried with God in baptism because my old life is now hidden in his death. And then we say raised to walk in a new life because I live a new life, a new arrangement, new inner life with God because of his glorious resurrection that he gives to us. Let me pray for us. God, Lord, I pray that in this moment, the words that we saw in the scripture, Lord, we would see them in picture and story form from the waters. We would see a foreknowledge that you set in eternity past to work in a, someone's life and we would worship you. Lord, we would look at that and we would celebrate that there was a calling that you reached from heaven to reach an individual, to draw them from death to life. Lord, we would look at that you're in the present day circumstances, you are changing them still. And one day it's all gonna end in glorification. And so Lord, would you give us the ability to celebrate that really well? that we might make much of you now. Lord, we love you. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.